0: Let me invite you to turn to Romans chapter seven this morning, Romans chapter seven, and while you're turning there, just uh, like to encourage you to be with us tonight. Uh, Matthew and Susan Bixby are here uh, and uh, reporting back tonight being in the service this evening. They're here this morning as well over in the pie section on this side, so if you catch them this morning, take opportunity to to greet them. it's their fault we have the snow, so you can talk with them about that and uh Hope you'll be here tonight to hear that report. You know, sometimes there's a lot of debate between uh, defining the terms teaching and preaching. Are they, the, are they different from each other? Are they the same thing? Do they have overlap? I, I personally take the position that they're not identical. Uh, and that's, I'm not going to take the time to lay it all out, but uh, they're used distinctively in the Scriptures. So that would be, they may have overlap but you, you actually have places where they're distinguished even in the same context, so they must not be identical, right? And I think a simple way to describe it would be that teaching uh, focuses on the communication of truth. Preaching communicates that truth as well, but adds the element of exhortation or challenge to it, right? That it, that it's, uh, so it's different. Then, if you're just say in a classroom and someone's teaching you the information and instructing you it, in it, uh, versus when the scriptures come along and say, for instance, in First Timothy four thirteen, read, exhort, and teach. So, exhort and teach are distinguished from each other. Or preach the word, and you're supposed to do it with reproof and rebuke and all instruction. So. So instruction is one of the ways in which you're preaching. It's involved in your preaching, but it also involves reproof and exhortation. So th- this is me justifying a third week in Romans 7. I'll just tell you straight up, all right? Because uh, the last two weeks have really been a little bit more on the teachy side, trying to understand, and then at the end I'd throw in some exhortation and 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 uh, try to press home some points. Uh, but this is such a... Uh, I mean, it's a deep but rich passage for helping us understand what the Christian life is. And and therefore, we need to understand it, but we also need to respond to it. And that's the exhortation side. It's like it needs to be more than just, well, we've got some information in our brain. But it actually challenges us about the way We are living out the Christian life, and so, so this morning I didn't. I I actually, I kept going back and forth all week, and and then I said, well, you know, we're going to spend one more week, right? We're going to just take some time to think about it that way, and as well, you know, when you're pulling it all apart, uh, it it really, you know, if I if you walked in and there was a table with all the parts of an engine and all i did was tell you about the parts you wouldn't necessarily actually understand how it fit together and what it does right and so in some ways we've been pulling it all apart and i want to make sure we put it all back together and understand what's going on is. so let's just let's just rehearse again what's going on all right you can see on the screens the theme that we're operating under the series title is romans 5 through 8 life and hope in christ Romans chapter 5 is life. Romans chapter 8 is hope. In between them, Paul stops to answer some questions, triggered really in chapter 6 verse 1 by an understanding of grace that might be twisted to mean, well, then we can we go on sinning? So he spends chapter six talking about that. And actually at chapter six, verse 15, another false kind of conclusion that he wants to address. And that is, since we're not under the law, can we go on sinning? Right? So, so in, in chapter six and seven, Paul is actually wrestling with some, uh, some issues that come up because of what he's saying about life and hope in Christ. Should we go on sinning because of grace? And his answer is absolutely not. No, we should not do that because grace does not lead to sin because it actually provides new life and a new master. And it it doesn't just remove the penalty. It actually changes you, makes you a new person in Christ because you are joined to Christ in his death and resurrection. So, so you have died to sin and are alive to God. So grace doesn't produce more sin. Grace actually works effectively in believers to change them. And the law, being free from the law, should not produce sinning because the law couldn't solve the sin problem. And that's what he's been dealing with here in chapter 7. So we were released from the law through our death with Christ so that we would serve in newness of the spirit and not oldness of the letter. Look at chapter 7, verse 6, because that verse is really important in understanding what happens in the rest of the chapter. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we would serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letters. So, so their answer, I mean, their question like, well, if we're not under the law, should we just, are we free to sin? And his answer is no. Right? And, and you need to recognize that the shift out from under the Mosaic law wasn't for the permission to sin. It was because the Mosaic law couldn't solve the problem with sin. That's why we're out from under it. It's not so we can do more sin. It's because the Mosaic law couldn't solve the problem. All right? And then that leads him to have to wrestle through the stuff that we've looked at. Well, like, so what's wrong with the law then? And, and Paul's like, oh, whoa, 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 hang on. The problem is not the law. The problem is sin. The problem is the flesh. All right, so when we look back at God giving the Mosaic law to Israel, it wasn't the Mosaic law that was the problem in Israel. It was sin, and it was the flesh. And that's important, all right, and we'll come to this in chapter 8, but I just want to make sure we understand it. That's important because the answer of not being under the Mosaic law does not mean we are lawless. Right? Paul will say, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 9, we are under the law of Christ. And in James, he talks about the law of liberty. Right? It's, it's, we're not under the Mosaic law, but there still is a rule of life for us as believers, and it's not lawless. Okay, the answer isn't to go, Mosaic law doesn't work, so no law is the way to go. No, look back at verse 6 again. What's the contrast that's there at the end of the verse? So that we serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the law or the letter. Right? The Mosaic law couldn't solve the problem because we need something more powerful than that. We need the work of the Holy Spirit. The answer, in fact, he will show us in chapter 8 is that the Spirit enables us to serve in a newness of life. So we can't jump from no Mosaic law to wee, like we can do anything. That's not the biblical answer at all. That's not the way to work through it. All right, so... What he's saying at the end of the chapter, if I could just summarize and then pull it apart again to show you what we're talking about, is this. And and that's simply this, that the normal Christian experience, the normal Christian experience is a lifelong battle with sin sustained by the confidence of final victory by God through Jesus Christ. I'm just going to say it again. The normal Christian experience is a lifelong battle with sin sustained by confidence in the final victory by God through Jesus Christ. And and we we need to have that shape the way we look at our Christian lives. Because if someone offers you a solution that excludes a lifelong battle They are not offering you a biblical solution. Right? They, they, and, and, and I've tried to illustrate it by saying there's some people who talk about some kind of form of Christian perfectionism or victory that you can get to the place where you, you know, you don't have this battle because you're entirely consecrated or you're fully dedicated to the Lord or you have reached the higher life of a Christian or the victorious life. And there's just, there's nothing to support that, I would suggest. And, and I think it should just like should sort of get us to think in our tracks. If the Apostle Paul didn't have it, who is that guy to tell you he has it? Right, whoever's writing the book, whoever's teaching the sermon, if, if the Apostle Paul says, from a Roman jail in Philippians chapter 3, I do not count myself as having attained it, but I press on. Who's this joker? Right? What, what, what uh, magic formula is he selling you? Because the scriptures do not give us that kind of uh, hope or confidence. That somehow I can be done with the battle with sin in this life is not a biblical position. But that shouldn't lead us below the floor to pessimism, right? Because it's sustained by confidence. And that kind of confidence is like what Paul expresses in Philippians 1.6, right? He says about the Philippians, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will continue it until the day of Christ. Right? So if God started it, God's going to finish it. That's, That's the confidence. And that's where Paul finishes. Look at 24, chapter 7, verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul is not beaten down by this normal Christian experience. He actually is sustained in the midst of it. All right. And this what we're seeing in Romans 7 is confirmed by Galatians chapter 5 verses 16 through 18 that talk about the battle between the flesh and the spirit. It's why Paul can say, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that he actually engages in the race as someone trying to win and why he disciplines himself. Because he knows that, that this is a fight, a battle in which he must be responsible. That's why Philippians chapter two, verses 12 and 13 say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you to want and work for his good pleasure. So, so Paul sees this dynamic going on. Of what I would say, not, and this is not originally, I mean, it's technically a guy named Anthony Hokuma in case you ever want to look it up, but he says it's the responsible participation of the believer. Right? I experience God's grace and I respond to it. God is at work in you. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because it's not actually brought to the completion yet. It still is in the process of God working us in us to make us like Christ. And this lifelong battle with sin is because of the new birth, which removed Paul from the realm of the flesh. Right, He's not in the flesh any longer as a realm which is contrary to the realm of being in the Spirit. Because that's the difference between death and life. That's what chapter 8 will say. Right? If the Spirit of Christ is in you, then you are not in the flesh. So, so what God did for Paul, and he does for anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ, is he actually takes them out of the realm that is in the flesh and places them in the spirit and the spirit in them. So they're a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away, right? But he is still of flesh. That's what 7.14 talks about. He has not had the remnant of his fallen condition removed yet. He describes it in verse 17 as indwelling sin, verse 20 as indwelling sin. He talks about a principle that is in him, that he still battles with his fallen human condition. Right. And, and I've tried to make the case that Paul is saying here, it's not an issue of relationship to God. Relationship to God is in the flesh or in the spirit. This is his condition as a human post fall. And we will all have that until the resurrection. Right. The redemption of our bodies, chapter eight, verse 23. And that's why we live right now in hope of that. Because that's what's been promised to us. And God has told us he will do this. So right now we groan because of that. And we're able to groan because we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We actually have, have tasted the salvation of the Lord. He has forgiven our sins. He's given us new life. But we are not yet glorified. We're not yet resurrected. So as long as we're in this life, we're going to have this tension. Described actually in Galatians 5 as us having an inevitable tension that we cannot fully do, either flesh or spirit. Right? They're they're tugging. And like in this text, he says, I want to do, but I don't do. And I don't want to do, but I do. Right? That's that's just going to be the way it is. I mean, we're going to have that fight happening if we've been born again. And it helps us understand. This is actually where we finished last week, all right? It helps us understand the tension that we already saw in chapter six. Look back there again so that you can, you can feel the tension that's here that he's gonna, he's really sort of explaining in chapter seven the, the dynamic behind it. All right. So look, look at verses five through seven of chapter six. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. All right, now look down to verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law, but grace, but under grace. All right. So, so here's, here's, here's the, 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 the picture of scripture about where we are. Right? The person I was before I came to Christ, in a very real sense, could say, died. I'm no longer that person. If anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Right, My old self was put off. Christ has made me new. But when I think about that newness, I should not think that I am now sinless, I'm now perfect and above sin, but that the power of it has been dealt a decisive blow, and now I'm called on to live that out. What God has done for me, I've used this throughout the series, the indicative of what God has done for me and in me, leads to the imperative about what I'm supposed to do. So don't present yourself to sin. Don't let sin reign. That's not what you were redeemed for. You were actually redeemed to be a servant of God and to present yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. So don't misuse the Lord's property. Don't don't you do what God redeemed you from. Okay, and and here's the thing we have to we have to wrestle with, right? So so if I died to sin, but I still have to fight sin, then then I I have to walk carefully through understanding that, right? He must be describing died to sin in a way that is talking about my fundamental, basic relationship to it. It's it's like in chapter 7 when he says, you died to the law so that you might be joined to someone new, Christ. Right? He's talking about a breaking of the relationship to establish a new one. Sin is no longer my master. God is through Christ. So I should live like that. And the reason I have to think that way, consider myself to be dead to sin and not present myself to it is because it's always chipping at me, nipping at my heels, wanting to produce in me rebellion against God. And I need to, to use uh, Biblical language, particularly associated with uh, King James. So I need to engage in mortification, putting to death the deeds of the body. I have to fight the good fight. I have to engage in this. And the very fight itself, as I said last week, is in fact a good sign, not necessarily a bad sign. Right? That's the presence of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. That's the reality of the new nature. That there is resistance in me against the flesh has come from God. Right? Because Ephesians 2 would say, prior to that, I lived my life according to it, I was governed by it, I loved it. And God has fundamentally altered my relationship to this world, to the devil, and even to my flesh so that now the resistance that's in me is actually a sign of his grace. He's at work in me to want and work for his good pleasure. So I should respond to that, right? And, and, and that's... On one hand, that's obvious, but there are people out there trying to tell you that, that if you respond to it, then you're working and you're not believing. Right? They, they actually look at a text like, like chapter six, which says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, and then they want you to go passive. Like somehow... You can let go and have that happen. But that command doesn't tell you to let go. It tells you to take hold. Throw it out. Right? Put to death the deeds of the body. So, so my response of faith isn't some kind of mystical, okay, God, sort of move me. My response of faith is like Hebrews 11 talks about. You know what, Noah, Noah by faith didn't go, okay, Lord, put that, put that ark together. Noah picked up his hammer and some wood because he obeyed by faith. Abraham didn't believe God and get teleported from Ur of the Chaldees. He set out. Right, Moses' parents didn't believe God and just sort of like all of a sudden a, a basket showed up and hovered its way over to the Nile. No, the response of faith is that you do the thing that God said to do. And if God says, don't let sin reign, then you trust God to tear down the idols. Put to death the sin. Because it is a battle. It's a fight sustained by confidence in what God has done and will do through Christ. We have a foretaste of the Spirit's presence and a longing for it because of the new birth. So it's all by God through Christ. All right, let me talk for a second about the Mosaic Law to make sure we understand. Because though it is good and spiritual, it cannot solve our sin problem. That's the oldness of the letter. And two things we should think about that as we get ready to, Lord willing, move into chapter eight. The Mosaic law can't change the heart. Right? You, and you, we, know, we know that all. I mean, I go back to Deuteronomy, right? And, and, and it's called Deutero's second nominee law, right? Because they got the law in Exodus at Mount Sinai, and just before they go into the promised land, God graciously tells them again what he expects of them, details out the law, it it recounts for them the good instruction of God, but here's what God says. Oh, that they had a heart in them to do this. So think about that. God just gave them the Mosaic law, and God says, oh, that they had a heart to do this. Because without the heart being changed, the law will not change the heart. Right? There has to be something that happens. And that's not... I mean... I believe that there's a clear sort of discontinuity between Old Testament and New Testament, but not so much that you sort of toss the Old Testament away. I mean, you remember when Nicodemus showed up to Jesus? And and he's a teacher of the law. And what does Jesus say to him? You must be born again. And here's this teacher of the law, and he's like, like, what's he talking about? Am I supposed to go back in my mom's womb somehow? And here, and and I know uh, I want to be careful when I say this, but like sometimes we try to make Jesus so sappy. All right? Here's Jesus looks right at this man and says, "Are you a teacher of Israel? And you don't get this, right?" So Jesus expected Nicodemus to understand what he meant. And Jesus found Nicodemus culpable for not understanding it. And the reason he should have understood it is because all the way back from Deuteronomy, it talked about the fact that you need to have a heart of flesh. You need to have a work inside. And actually, when you come through the prophets, it's talking about the fact that the spirit has to, in fact, give life. Nicodemus didn't see it. He was thinking the law could change his heart, and it can't. You must be born again. It must be a work of the Spirit of God that actually takes out the heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh, soft, receptive, right? The the Mosaic law cannot change your heart. But also what Paul is saying here is that the Mosaic law cannot constrain your flesh because your problem is inside. My problem's inside, right? So so the Mosaic law came along and it was trying to build fences and separate them from the peoples around them and the sins of those people and and God was shutting them up under that. And, And so nationally it had some effect of that. But but at the end of the day, it can't constrain our indwelling sin because something has to happen inside, right? There has to be a change. And and I take the time to highlight that because that's how we have to understand what's going on here. The answer, chapter 7, verse 6, is not the oldness of the letter, but the newness of the Spirit, Because the Spirit is the answer. He opens the eyes of understanding to the significance of the cross. That what Christ did there was the decisive act of God to provide salvation. To deal with sin's penalty and provide the basis of a relationship with God in the righteousness of Christ. And we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that you will not see that apart from the Spirit's work. Right? When when people hear about the cross, 1 Corinthians 1 says, they consider it foolishness and a stumbling block. But to those who are the called of God... It's the wisdom of God and the power of God. And so Paul says in chapter two, that's why he preaches Christ crucified so that their faith would not rest in men, but in the power of God. And that only happens by the Spirit. So, so if I could say it this way, the seems like persistent, perpetual error of human religion is to think that the transformation of people happens from the outside in. And that was the tendency that people who had, who had uh, come up under a false kind of concept of what the law could and could not do were carrying over into their understanding of the Christian life and and it always runs the danger of the problem at galatia of combining faith and works right thinking maybe we're saved by faith but we actually grow by works of the law and and paul's very clear throughout all of his writings no that the engine of everything is the work of the Holy Spirit to open the eyes to the past accomplishment of Christ. We'll see in chapter 8 to testify in our hearts that we're God's children and therefore we have present access to God. Right? We have a mediator. So it's the Spirit that bears witness to us that we're God's children and therefore can come to our Father for what we need. And the Spirit is. The down payment of our promised resurrection, the first fruits. And so he is at work in us as the guarantee and first fruits of the promised acceptance of God. Because that's really what it's about at the judgment. Right? Remember what the gospel that Paul preached to the Thessalonians? You turn from dead idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, Jesus, whom he raised from the dead who rescues us from the wrath to come, right? The, the, the guarantee for us is, is that when the wrath of God comes on this world, Jesus will rescue us from that. We'll be excluded from the judgment that's coming. And it's the Spirit who bears testimony to that in us. Right? We sing it, and it always, it's like Old English, right but but it's it's really a great verse in Wesley's hymn arise my soul arise right the spirit answers to the blood and tells me i'm born of god right what's the blood there the blood of christ that has been shed for sinners and the presence of the spirit answers think echo right the blood has been applied to this one the spirit resonates with the testimony that we're God's children, we're accepted before him. That when the judgment comes, if I could put it in Passover terms, the blood's been applied and the judgment's gonna go right on past because there's no condemnation to them or in Christ Jesus. Right? The Spirit bears witness that we have been rescued. Right? So there's not a dreadful fear in the heart of a Christian. I'm not fighting with sin because I think, man, if I don't win this, I'm going to get thrown into hell. I'm fighting because God has set me free. And I don't want to live for the enemy, even if I'm still somewhat in the enemy's territory. Right? Because this world hasn't been reclaimed by Christ yet. He hasn't come to establish his kingdom yet. He's calling out a people for his name and we're waiting for him to come. But this world is not my home. My citizenship is in heaven, from which I'm waiting for Christ to return. To transform me into the glory of his resurrection. So so I am now a part of the resistance (laughs) I am fighting against the devil, Ephesians chapter 6. I am fighting against sin, Romans chapter 7. I am not on his side.
1: And I don't want to live like a traitor.
0: So I want to fight because of what Christ has done for me. And I fight by the power of the Spirit. So... When we really understand a passage like this in Romans chapter 7, I think it should produce three, at least three things in us. All right, The first is humility. Our confidence and dependence is not in self. It's in the Spirit of Christ. Ultimately, because that's gospel faith, Right? Remember the kind of faith that Paul's talking about. Go to chapter four really quick, just so you can see when we think about faith. He illustrates it by Abraham, and I think this is a good illustration for us. Look at at chapter four and verse 18. In hope against hope, he, that's Abraham, believed so they might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured What God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it was credited to him as righteousness. And you might go, well, that's Abraham and the birth of Isaac. But not look what he says then in verse 23. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. So, so the concept here of Abraham having trust in God, that God could do something extraordinary, produce life from death, is the same kind of faith you and I have. That Christ died and rose again. That God is able to take Jesus of Nazareth, have him buried in the tomb, and raise him from the dead so that we could be justified, so that we could have salvation. And faith is trusting that God is able to do what he promised to do. Right? And, and so when it comes down ultimately to my trusting Christ for salvation, it is me resting in the fact that Christ promised this to me. When it comes to my victory over sin in the battle of day to day, it really does come down to me trusting Christ that, that sin will not win. Right? I can feel the brokenness and I can feel the fight, but I know that God is going to win. Thanks be to God who gives the victory to Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, so in no way should I be confident in myself or dependent on myself I'm confident in Christ. I'm dependent on the Spirit. I know I desperately need His help. But I'm also responsible, not a victim. And this is a, we just have to keep chopping at this root in our culture that wants to blame everybody else for the problems in our lives. When it comes down to sin, I am the victimizer. Right? When it's my sin, I am the one committing it. No one else is committing my sin. Right? They're committing theirs, and they're accountable to God for it. Right? But the answer in our day to constantly look away from ourselves instead of looking at ourselves under the light of God's word actually promises help but really only works like Novocaine. It causes your conscience not to feel the prick that it ought to of having violated what God wants for you. It doesn't actually solve the problem. The right answer in humility is actually repentance, not self pity. All right, so I don't want you to hear, when I talk about us having a lifelong battle with sin, I don't want you to go, yeah, I guess that's just the way it is. Isn't, doesn't that stink? No, it's actually, think about the battle part. <laughs> and you know what the response in the battle part is? Repentance. I, I actually see what I've done in disobedience to God, and I acknowledge it, I have a change of heart regarding it, and I desire not just for God to forgive me, but to change me. Right? Think First John. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. Right? So I want God to change me. If I don't want to, if I don't want to be rid of the sin I'm committing, then I think, I think it's pretty safe to say you're not repenting over it. Or you're, you're basically just wanting to get out of the consequences. Show up to the confessional booth and say, you know, forgive me, I've sinned. You know, have them say, do, you know, do 10 Hail Marys and everything's good. Right, and I've told you, I mean, I played hockey with guys growing up who wanted to go to confession early on Saturday evening so they could wipe out last week's sins so they could start piling up the next week's. Because it's all just a transaction. Right, there's no brokenness. There's no, I have betrayed my love and loyalty for Christ. I have sinned against Him because we have a tendency to think of sin as being about us. It messes up our life. It makes, it, it, it breaks things that we like, right? We, we, if we're, if we're just sorry,
1: right? If we just feel bad, if we just don't like what's happening, that's not biblical repentance. Right, that's that's what Second
0: Corinthians would call is the sorrow of the world. Right? There there has to be a fullness to repentance that includes the way we think about sin. We acknowledge it to be what it is, and, and of the heart that we have actually a change of of affection regarding it, as we were going toward it and now we're repelled from it. And we have a resolve not just to be forgiven, but to be changed. So if I want to do battle with it, I cannot let the wounds of sin get infected because I'm not attentive to what it's doing. I have to realize that that this is something that God has given me a remedy for. And it's really not about me and, and, and how I feel in the middle of this. It's about my relationship to God and my love for him. Because sin is always presenting a rival love. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. So the battle that's happening in my life is always whether or not I'm going to choose Christ or I'm choosing myself. It's, it's about whether I want to honor Christ or I'm just trying to manage my life to get the the thing I want. Right? I mean it's I know I have to like say sorry to people that I've hurt because if I don't say sorry to them then it's just going to, you know, it's going to keep making my life more miserable. But it's not about actually changing and becoming like Christ. And so we need to guard against the kind of false humility that really centers on us versus God. We need to look in the mirror of the word, not of ourselves, right? When I look at myself, that's not who I want to be, so I'm sorry I did that. Or we look at other people and we go, we feel some kind of reaction, either because we chose somebody that we think we're better than, or we chose somebody that we think we can't live up to. If we pick someone we can't live up to, we get depressed. If we look at somebody we're better than in our mind, then we feel better already. You know, like the Pharisee, thank you, I'm not like this guy. Right, the mirror we need to look into is the mirror of God's word that shows us from God the true nature of our sin. Because these other ones are like a carnival mirror. Right, you Remember walking in those mirrors that were all contorted, and sometimes they make you look smaller, sometimes they make you look bigger. Right? When you start to look at other people as the standard for dealing with your sin, you're looking into the carnival mirror, and you're inclined to pick the one that's best to your advantage. But when you really want to deal with your sin, you look into the mirror of God's Word, and you see it, the way God says it is, so that you can deal with it the way God wants you to deal with it, and to respond to Him in that way, humbly, to bow before God and acknowledge what we've done against His honor and in breaking our loyalty to Him. Right? I mean, the, You probably have somebody in your life that you don't want to fail. You don't want to act unkindly to. You don't want to tell something that's not true. And the thought of doing that against them is so repugnant in your heart because of how much you
1: value that relationship. Is it that way toward God? I mean, is it like that toward God?
0: that you don't want to do something that, that dishonors him, that, that misrepresents him, that, that is deceitful toward him, that takes the kindness he's shown you and
1: use it to selfish advantage.
0: Right? That's what I'm talking about. Do we see sin as a battle of our loyalty to God, our love for Jesus Christ? If we don't, then we won't be fighting it like we should fight it. And we don't because we're still too much at the center of our lives. And Christ has to be there. It's the love of Christ shown for us on the cross that takes hold of us and propels us to live for him instead of for ourselves. So we got to think about Jesus and what he's done for us. I think a passage like this helps us to recognize the need for honesty about where we are, right? So, so I'll just put it in contrasting words, that we should be confessing our sin, not covering it.
1: I mean, we can, we can, we can get so good at finessing wrongs.
0: Right, we we we've got all kinds of ways to sort of to sort of just soften the blow of what we've done, and 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 to some degree, it's us sort of covering it because I don't, I really don't want this I don't I don't really want to say the same thing about it that God says about it, so I'm going to pull my punches. I'm going to like I'm going to just well you know okay,
1: I made a mistake.
0: Right? Instead of owning it. And, and, and if we really understand, okay, so what I'm saying is I hold this passage up and I look at this passage. God is not surprised that I struggle with sin.
1: Nor should you. And no insult, but I, I am not surprised that you struggle with sin. Because that's what this
0: text says. There's not a person in this room, no matter how long they've been saved, who has arrived at the point where they have abandoned indwelling sin. So
1: quit trying to fake it. Quit trying to act like you're not a sinner. You are.
0: Right? That doesn't mean you bask in it. Right? If if you understand the ugliness of it and the danger of it, then then you would actually seek help, not hide from help. You wouldn't play the Adam and Eve game. Right? Sort of hide, think God won't find them. If if you really understand what's at stake, you'd be running toward God. Like, look what we did. You said we're going to die. Help! Right, But that, that tendency in our hearts to not be real about our sin tends to push us toward hiding it instead of pursuing the help that we need to grow in Christ, to understand what's at stake in it. And if we're honest about it in a text like this, then that means that we will guard against hypocrisy. That is a false front, and try to live a life of sincerity. And I deliberately skipped the authenticity word. Okay, if you want, to, if you mean by authenticity real, okay. But authenticity in our culture means you being matched up outside and in and and it's about your mental whatever your spiritual your psychological health what i'm saying is is hypocrisy in the scriptures is always putting on a front right it's trying to make people think something is true that's not true instead of that we need to pursue sincerity which has more to do with us not giving people's false impressions than walking around puking on everybody. Because right? there's not really anything in the Scriptures to say, well, so we should all just sit around and pick the scabs of sin in our life. All right? We should be applying God's remedies to our life. We should, we should be trying to live sincerely before the Lord, which means we don't give false impressions If, if we're trying to live out faithfully, then we're not afraid to acknowledge that our feet are made of clay. We don't have to always be taking our shoes off. Right? Because some people aren't looking for genuine forgiveness and spiritual change. They're looking for, in our culture, right? They're looking for the, the kind of empathy that passes no judgment and just sort of puts its arm around them and says, oh, yeah, oh, boy, life's, you know. Because to speak truth in our day is to be considered wrong. Right? When you, when you encounter somebody who needs help, you're supposed to try to help them. If somebody doesn't want help, then they're not really repenting. Right? If somebody actually doesn't want the the encouragement and exhortation and help they need, right, then then if they don't want it, I'm not saying they don't want it done badly. If they don't want it, they just want to sit in the mud for a while and enjoy the mud bath. That's not repentance. Okay, God doesn't call us to wallow in our sin. So let's not get sucked into our culture's tendency to wallow in sin and feel like we've dealt with it. Right? We need to deal with it the way God calls on us to do that. So so we should be humble and honest and, I think, eager, hungry to be like Christ and with Christ. Because here's, I want to end on a positive note. Right here's the good news, and and we finish chapter seven with a pointing toward our victory. And chapter eight's gonna lay it out, because here's what is true: God has given us everything we need for this fight. Right? He's, he's equipped us with all that we need for life and godliness. I shouldn't be going into the fight thinking. You know, this is a losing proposition. I should be thinking, this is a real fight. And sometimes I have made it harder. Right? If if I've harbored sin in my life, I've actually made the fight tougher. So so I may realize this is going to be a steeper uphill climb to get out of this, but, but God has given me what I need in his word in his spirit and in the provision of Christ in the body of believers, right? He's given me everything that I need. So I need to be eager to use and access and benefit from the resources. I need to be getting the word in me because that's what's gonna change me. I need to, and this sounds weird, but I need to take Galatians 5. I need to make sure I'm in the Spirit. I'm walking in the Spirit, led by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. I need to be thinking about the fact that this fight will only be done and won by the Spirit's work in me. So I need to make certain that I'm not quenching the Spirit. I'm not grieving the Spirit. I'm not testing the Spirit. I'm not lying to the spirit, right? I'm I'm realizing how much I am dependent on his work. And and I'm putting myself in the midst of God's people because it's there that that God has supplied the gifts to pour into my life, some of which is to exhort me while it's called today so I don't be hardened by any deceitfulness of sin, right? Because here's the thing. In the middle of this fight, I know from Hebrews chapter 3 that sin deceives and it hardens. Right? So there might be there might be parts of the fight where I'm not seeing what I should be seeing. And I need somebody else to go, "Hey, look behind you." There, there's there's an attack coming. Look out. Or I might not be feeling what I should be feeling because it hardens through its deceitfulness. And I need someone to go, man, I don't understand why you're doing what you're doing. Seems like I remember you saying sometime in the past that you didn't think you should do that. Why are you doing that now? right? Because my conscience might begin callous and I need someone to lovingly, graciously, but firmly speak the truth to me. Because that's what we need. And if we think that we can make it all on our own, then go back to the first thing I said.
1: You need to humble yourself. Right? Because
0: Because if you think you don't need the gifts that God has given to you, you think you're smarter than
1: God. And here's what I'd tell you. That's not only arrogant, it's stupid.
0: Because God knows better than you. And he says, you need the body of Christ. To help you grow up into Christ. So humble yourself. Let's pray. Father, please help us when we think about the ramifications of your word to do so uh, at the street level of our lives. Well, this text is profound in its description of our experience as followers of Christ. Help us to meditate on it so that our progress will become evident. Lord, I pray that you might give us hearts that are humble before you and honest to you and with others, and that is hungry in the pursuit of Christ and longing for his return. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.